0: The following presentation is not suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. It's May 20, 2013, and Edward Joseph Snowden zips up his backpack, grabs the Rubik's Cube off of his desk, and deliberately makes his way out of his office. He starts down a mile-long tunnel that leads to the exit of the National Security Agency facility deep inside of a mountain in Hawaii he's the only person marching toward the light today. His footsteps echo through an empty corridor, making it feel like he's marching toward his execution instead of his liberation. Snowden has been at this NSA facility for a year now, silently collecting data and storing it on his trusty Rubik's Cube. Data that would send the world into shock, panic, and give everyone yet another reason why they shouldn't trust the United States government. But first, Snowden needs to get the hell out of Dodge. He needs to get out of this mountain facility and into the fresh Hawaiian air so he can breathe again. He walks on fidgeting with his Rubik's Cube, spinning and turning, spinning and turning it, over and over again. The Cube's cemented in his clammy hands as he strides towards the exit. He's solved the damn thing over a thousand times now. What started as a mental exercise has now grown into a tick, spinning and turning, spinning and turning. He's never seen without his Rubik's Cube close by. But today, he wants to keep that thing as close to him as humanly possible. Not because he cares about the toy all that much. He has piles of those cubes at home. But because of what this toy, this specific cube contains. You see, for the last six years of his life, Edward Snowden has gone from starry-eyed white hat computer hacker with a sense of patriotic duty to a man holding top secret security clearance trusted with the government's deepest, darkest secrets. Get the fuck out of here, his brain screamed. But he keeps his pace even as he approaches the end of the tunnel and toward the armed security guard at the exit. Snowden knows how to keep his cool. He learned it during his training at the CIA. Sup, Marks? Snowden. It was Officer Marks working the security door today, just as Snowden had predicted. He tosses Marks the Rubik's Cube. This is the moment of truth. You ever saw one of those? Snowden asks the guard. Marks looks at the cube. Spinning it, turning it, pulling it. Snowden holds his breath. He's trying to keep his heart rate down and his asshole puckered. He puts his backpack onto the metal scanner and continues to hold his breath. Breathe, goddammit, before you start sweating. Next step, the body scanner. Get in, put your hands up, and wait. Let the machine do its thing. The seconds tick by excruciatingly slow. What the hell is going on? Have they seen something in the scanner? Did I forget to put the chip back into the cube? Would the cube set off alarms on some secret NSA scanner behind the counter? I didn't account for that. Snowden was scanned from fingertips to toenails. He wonders how much longer it will take for the polymer tube to open and release him one false move, and Edward Snowden would be spending the rest of his life in a windowless CIA black site being waterboarded, electrocuted, and maybe executed. No judge, no jury, no trial. Thanks, Patriot Act. Edward Snowden doesn't believe in God, not after the things he's seen, but he prays at this exact moment, just in case anyone is listening, please just let this fucking plan work. Snowden can't stand it anymore. Is all hell about to break loose? The female security guard working the body scanner gives Marks the thumbs up, and Edward Snowden walks out of the body scanner one step closer to his freedom, for now. On this episode, one aimless computer nerd from a Maryland suburb, invasions of privacy, and that goddamn Rubik's Cube. I'm Keith Corneluk, and this is Modem Mischief. You're listening to Modem Mischief. In this series, we explore the darkest reaches of the internet. We'll take you into the minds of the world's most notorious hackers and the lives affected by them. We'll show you places you won't find on Google and what goes on down there. This is the story of Edward Snowden. It was May 19, 2013, when Edward Snowden shoved pillows under the cracks of his hotel room door. He pulled the blinds closed, shutting out the neon street signs glowing on the Hong Kong streets below. He felt like a pot that was about to boil with the lid still on. All the pressure he'd been feeling for the past seven years was bubbling up inside and threatening to flip his lid. Curled up on the bed, alone in the hotel room, he finally let himself succumb to the emotions he'd been burying for so long, and he sobbed. Fear, sadness, retribution, and pain all came bubbling to the surface. He was finally here. The plan that he'd been working on since 2011 was finally going to happen, and Snowden had no idea whether he'd be branded an American hero or prosecuted as a traitor. Snowden thought back to the beginning, where his story all started. If you asked his parents, they'd tell you that Ed's drive to save the world and help the oppressed wasn't born until after the terrorist attacks of 9-11. The Pentagon and World Trade Center attacks were enough to jolt Ed out of his slacker-hacker life and into the real world. But Ed knew his story began when he joined the CIA. Snowden applied to the CIA with nothing but his high school diploma and extensive knowledge of hacking and computers. He knew he wasn't the typical choice for a recruit, but he also knew what the government needed. More cybersecurity. As it turned out, Snowden was right. After completing extensive background checks, interviews, and skill tests, Snowden passed with near-perfect scores and was immediately thrown into CIA training. Here, his homegrown obsession with hacking, software engineering, encryption and data mining were sharpened and weaponized. Snowden graduated CIA training in 2006 and gathered in the hall among his peers, awaiting to hear his first official assignment. Student after student received their orders, around outposts, Afghanistan bunkers. By the time the instructor made it down to S, Snowden was vibrating with anticipation. So when the instructor spoke, Snowden thought he misheard him. Uh, can you repeat that, sir? He asked, but the answer was the same. Snowden was being stationed in Geneva. Fucking Geneva, of all places. Geneva as in Switzerland, home of cheese fondue, yodeling, and Roger Federer. Geneva was a far cry from fighting terrorist cells in the Middle East surrounded by nothing but sand and trenches. Instead of fighting side by side with the men and women on the front line and taking down cyber terrorist cells, Snowden was running security checks on the CIA systems. He felt trapped by the office work and begged his supervising agent for a field case to work on. After stonewalling Snowden's request for a few months, his superior finally relented and threw Snowden an easy assignment. The job was to investigate assassination threats on newly elected President George W. Bush. The analyst, Agent Huffington, assigned to work the case with Snowden, called him into his office on March 12, 2007, to give Snowden profiles on possible subjects. It was Ed's job to narrow down the leads. When Snowden visited Huntington's office to collect the subject profiles, he was surprised when Huntington invited him in, and even more surprised when Snowden saw the software X Keyscore being used for the first time. From what Snowden could tell, Huntington was using X-Keyscore to search people's entire online presence and internet history in order to make his list of suspects. Huntington printed off a few pages and handed them to Snowden. Flipping through the pages, Snowden noticed that most of the communications listed in each file weren't from public chats or message board postings. Instead, the communications listed in each person's profile were private emails, text messages, and chats this can't be right, he thought. But each report was the same. The government was searching people's private internet history. It seemed impossible to Snowden, or more likely, illegal. Snowden asked the analyst about the profiles and whether they needed a particular court order that would permit them to look at the size and scope of the documents he held in his hand. But the analyst laughed it off. Court order, he echoed. Fuck that! They didn't need a court order, they were the fucking CIA. An X-key score had been CIA-approved as a matter of national security. National security? Again, something wasn't right. Snowden left the analyst's office and continued looking at the stack of reports. Most of the profiles he held in his hand weren't detailing criminals or even people who made public threats against the president. More than half of the flagged profiles were college kids making a stupid joke over text. The revelation slightly unhinged Snowden, who felt like he was effectively spying on people who'd done nothing wrong, citizens who hadn't broken any laws or done anything criminal, and yet, had ended up on Snowden's list where he was now reading their texts. It was maddening, shocking, but before Snowden could even think about what to do, he made a darker discovery. Working on a new case, Snowden was introduced to a new software called Tempora. Tempora, the analyst explained, was a British black ops program that allowed CIA operatives live webcam access and phone tapping. Without a warrant, agents could tap into the live webcam feed of a laptop that wasn't even turned on. Snowden had never seen anything like it in his entire life. When he learned about the new system, Snowden also discovered more of the NSA's dark secrets. After doing a little digging and chatting with his peers around the water cooler, Snowden found out that the operatives were using the software to spy on ex-girlfriends and wives. Reading their chats and emails, checking their porn history and phone, even hacking their webcams and watching them live while they showered, cooked, and fucked. The NSA had a name for this hacking practice. They called it LoveInt, modeled after other intelligence terminologies like Sigint which stands for Signals Intelligence, aka intelligence gathered by intercepting signals. Snowden fully believed that the government could do some Bruce Wayne kind of justice with these programs. With simple search parameters or a base of known fugitives to work off of, the software might have actually been able to do a lot of good and put a ton of bad and dangerous people in prison. But that's not what the NSA was doing with the resources and power at their fingertips, not by a long shot. And the reality of the situation made him feel slimy and gross. Snowden had seen enough from the government to know that nothing good or helpful was really happening with these technologies, at least not that he could see. If anything, they were hurting people more than helping them, but he worried about reporting the abuse to his superiors who would authorize the use of these programs. At best, he would be ignored, and at worst, he'd be burned as an agent. Instead of going to battle with the CIA, Snowden resigned in 2009. Since making a name for himself in the CIA, Snowden didn't stay jobless for long. By the end of the year, Snowden already had a new job as an NSA contractor for Dell Computers in his dream city of Tokyo, Japan. In his new role, Snowden was helping Dell manage computer systems for the CIA, FBI, and 16 other black ops agencies that would kill him for muttering their name in his sleep or even writing it down on a diner napkin. He also instructed top-ranking officials and military officers on how to defend their systems from Chinese hackers. What that really meant, though, was more spying. At Dell, Snowden saw how the NSA was gathering data on the Chinese and hacking into their communications hubs. Snowden himself regularly hacked into the country's primary IP address blocks to fish for data. It wasn't a criminal offense, it was part of the job. Discovering the global surveillance systems at Dell should have shocked Snowden to his core. Still, he was starting to understand that this is how the government operated, widely and without oversight. To make matters worse, Snowden's health had become a major problem. In Tokyo, Snowden collapsed on the floor of his apartment and was treated for a seizure at a local hospital. Internally, Snowden was falling apart and struggling to hold himself together in the face of the lies and injustice he witnessed daily. The stress and secrets were weighing on his conscience, and he was living in fear of being secretly stalked online. While Snowden battled on the inside, he kept his demeanor calm and cool on the outside. Everyone who met Snowden was endlessly impressed by him, and as a result, he continued to move up the ranks with Dell and the NSA. Coworkers workers had called Snowden a genius amongst geniuses, and his superiors took notice. Snowden was offered a promotion, and he gladly accepted. In 2011, Snowden bounced from Tokyo to Maryland, and a year later, moved again from Maryland to Hawaii. Both career changes were intended to be promotions for Snowden. His counterparts liked him and Snowden was good at winning the favor of the chief officers. From April 2012 to May 2013, Snowden toiled away at Dell's NSA base in Hawaii. As much as Snowden tried not to think about all the government spying, it always managed to creep back into his mind. Every time a webcam was left open, every message he sent from his phone became dangerous, a potential weapon that his government could wield against him. He wouldn't even know it until it was too late. Snowden's presence in both the virtual and real world were rapidly fading from existence. After a year at Dell, Snowden quit. He'd grown increasingly restless and dissatisfied and gone from sick to sicker. His anxiety and paranoia were mounting the higher he rose in his career, and Snowden wondered if the stress from his job would kill him. Booz Allen Hamilton hired Snowden immediately after he left Dell. The information and technology consulting firm worked out of the NSA's Hawaii Regional Operations Center and was known as the Tunnel because it was built underground. To help him troubleshoot all the systems and help any staff member on site with their tech, Snowden was given wide-ranging access to all NSA's computers. By 2013, Snowden's declining health was becoming something that he couldn't brush under the rug any longer. He had headaches, nausea, He'd been experiencing seizures and they were growing more frequent, even with medication. When he asked for an extended leave of absence from work, he'd only been in Hawaii for 15 months. That said, Snowden's request for an extended leave was approved. It was May 23, 2013, when Booz Allen Hamilton ran their security checks at the base. If you remember, Snowden had packed up his Rubik's Cube and left the building on a Friday only three days prior. Usually, during the grunt work security checks, only the occasional sounds of sipping coffee and tapping keyboards could be heard. Today, however, after only a few minutes of scanning, one computer let out a small but startling and the words systems breach flashed onto the screen. The first alert was followed by another and then another after that. In a matter of seconds, the entire front screen was covered in red flashing messages. Analysts were furiously typing, pages were printing, and the system seemed to be crashing around them. The site manager looked at the data being streamed to the large computer screen at the front of the room and saw that all the breaches had one thing in common, originating from the same codename. Verax. The code name belonged to none other than Edward J. Snowden. The site manager rang the CIA director, who gave the order less than 30 minutes after the chaos had begun. The CIA would need to find Edward Snowden. Snowden had done something so unprecedented that the CIA and the NSA didn't even know what hit them. They knew that Snowden had stolen documents, but had no idea how many there was no way for the agencies to know exactly what had been stolen or what information and programs could be compromised. The American government had to take matters of national security seriously, and the quiet manhunt for Edward Snowden began unbeknownst to the public. The government planned on keeping it that way. Could Snowden be selling government secrets to Russia, or exposing all the assignments of his other fellow agents to UK intelligence? With no way to know for sure, all they could do was sit and wait and see what Snowden had planned. No one at the CIA or NSA would have known that Snowden's decision to steal classified NSA documents and expose their black ops programs began after his posting in Geneva. Snowden was appalled by what was happening and made a silent but solemn vow to do everything in his power to stop it. But to take his plan from dream to reality, He needed to play along with the agencies he planned to exploit. He had to be a good little spy. Even though the plan had been hatched by Snowden early in his contractor career, it wasn't until April of 2012 that he began stealing government documents that he later hoped to use against them. At Dell alone, Snowden could steal almost 200,000 documents, and once he copied as many documents as possible, he quit. When Snowden took his next job at Booz Allen Hamilton, it appeared like Snowden was merely working his way up the cyber-intelligence ladder. However, he only took the job with Booz for one thing – more documents. Booz Hamilton is a company controlled by the well-connected Carlyle Group. The Carlyle Group was one of the world's largest secret government investment groups that funded most of Booz Allen Hamilton's top-secret activities. The position at Booz was the last stop on Snowden's document gathering list, and his job allowed Snowden access to NSA data mining machines worldwide, and promised a trove of incriminating documents he planned to use to prove the domestic surveillance done by the American government was unconstitutional. After stealing another 200,000 something documents from Booz Allen, Snowden decided that it was time for the next step of his plan, to bring in the media, on Saturday, December 1, 2012, after spending Thanksgiving alone and eating Chinese food, Snowden sent his first encrypted email to journalist Glenn Greenwald using the codename Verax. Ed didn't have the luxury of time on his side. Each hour and minute that ticked by was another hour or minute the government could discover what he had done. He would avoid setting off most of their alarms for now, but it wouldn't last forever. After a month without hearing from Greenwald, Snowden moved on to recruiting videographer Laura Poitras. Snowden saw a documentary Poitras made about domestic spying by the National Security Agency, and that sealed the deal for him. He needed Poitras on his team. Again, it seemed like Snowden had found the perfect journalist to work with, but he was worried she would ignore him like Greenwald did. Snowden reached out to her in a series of encrypted emails and continued to go by a codename. To his delight, Poitras responded and was able to hop on an encrypted network so that she could easily communicate with Snowden. But the encrypted network wasn't enough to appease the young operative. After their initial communications, Snowden instructed Poitras to get on an even more secure network, and she complied. With each hoop that Snowden made Poitras jump through, anxiety for them both rose. After going back and forth with Poitras for a month, Snowden started keeping tabs on her online communications. He needed to know that he could trust her before revealing his identity and the entirety of his documents. In May, Snowden saw that Poitras had been communicating with journalist Bart Gelman about Verax, aka Edward Snowden. Poitras didn't reveal her identity or anything about the case, and Snowden knew he could trust her. That month, Snowden asked Poitras to message Bart Gelman and bring him on the team. The careful juggling of the three journalists was all part of Snowden's plan. Each one, Greenwald, Poitras, and Gelman, offered a different but sound perspective. But his act was more than just about testing their loyalty to the story and him as a source. Snowden was petrified that the United States government would catch wind of his plan and blow the whole thing to pieces. After working in the most top-secret channels of the American government, Snowden knew that he would be hunted and that the CIA, NSA, and booze contractors would do everything in their power to shut him down. They would go to the ends of the earth to stop one person, reporter, news channel that got their hands on the documents he stole and the information they contained. The NSA and the CIA would go to any length to protect their secrets, even if it meant taking out anyone involved one by one. Snowden needed the information spread as far and wide as possible. He required multiple journalists, records and accounts, news outlets and media types for good measure. The government wouldn't eradicate this threat with a sniper or a drone strike. They'd be forced to face the consequences of their actions. When Snowden left the NSA building in Hawaii on March 17, 2013, he wasn't stopped or even extensively searched. He hopped onto the first plane to China and entered stage three of his plan. Get the hell out of Dodge. He spun the Rubik's Cube in his hand and thought of the tiny chip tucked safely inside. The chip held years of data collection and government secrets. Secrets that would be soon shared if everything else went according to plan. After 24 hours of layovers and traveling, Snowden arrived at the Mira, a luxury hotel connected to a busy urban mall in downtown Hong Kong. Snowden paid with a credit card to avoid looking extra suspicious. He didn't want to be a shadowy figure hiding away in the dark if he could help it. He wanted the public to know that he was funding his way in Hong Kong, not some opposing spy agency, and his hands were as clean as they could be. From his room in Mira, Snowden entered phase four of his plan. He needed to meet with the chosen journalists in Hong Kong so that they could write the stories and share them with the public before the government found Snowden and tried to arrest him. Poitras was able to get Glenn Greenwald on board with Snowden's plan, and the reporting team was complete with three seasoned reporters. He didn't have a moment to waste. It was only a matter of time before the NSA, the CIA, and the FBI would start looking for him. He needed to spread the documents in his possession before that happened. If he failed, he'd be let out of the front door of the Mira in handcuffs. Failing wasn't an option. On Monday morning, June 3rd, Greenwald and Poitras met their shadowy source at the Hong Kong Mall. Snowden had said to meet outside the restaurant at that mall. He'd be carrying a Rubik's Cube. They arrived early, and he wasn't there. Snowden peered at them from inside a shop window, watching the journalists as they stared into weathered faces in the crowd with calculated anticipation. Snowden checked his watch. It was approaching five after four the time that he instructed them to leave if he hadn't yet arrived. He could see them talking with arms waving and red faces. He took a breath and left the store. He was ready. Snowden strolled over to the two, tossing his Rubik's Cube in the air as he approached them. They seemed surprised and looked Snowden up and down and then up and down again. What time does the restaurant open? Greenwald stuttered following Snowden's emailed instructions to the letter. At noon, Snowden replied, but don't go there. The food sucks. Then, Snowden glanced around. Follow me, he said. Both Poitras and Greenwald shared a look and took after Snowden. They followed him down the stairs and into a hotel, careful to keep their eye on him as they walked. Snowden knew what they were thinking. He was too young, too bright-eyed, too bushy-tailed to have the knowledge and experience he claimed. He would gladly prove them wrong. Poitras, Greenwald, and Gelman initially had their doubts about the young man sitting before them, But the more they all spoke, the more their doubts seemed to fade. Snowden provided credible information to show that he was indeed who he claimed to be. The most damning evidence of all wasn't just Snowden's accounts of military operations or his photos with high ranking officials. It was the abundance of government documents. Snowden had easily stolen over one million documents from the NSA, and the story was laid out plainly in each file they read. In the swath of information, a clear picture emerged for the journalists about what was really happening inside the American government. It was clear that the NSA was collecting almost every phone call made in America and overseas. The government was intercepting all internet and phone history traveling through underground fiber optic hubs. The NSA had also targeted video games, cell phone apps, and every other corner of the digital world under the guise of national security. They broke encrypted networks and hacked into secret platforms. The journalists quickly came to the same conclusion Snowden did years ago. The American government was spying on everyone. By the end of their first day as a group, Greenwald had finished his first article written about the FISA court order that secretly allowed the government to spy on its citizens without informing them. The Guardian planned to publish it the next day, but worried they could be monumentally breaking the law. They called the White House to make sure that they weren't breaking any laws. But the White House wasn't even able to acknowledge the document. Now, the White House knew there was a leak in the government and they'd be one step closer to narrowing in on Snowden himself. The group didn't waste any time publishing the articles, including the story by The Guardian and an interview released late on Sunday night. The story immediately started going viral, ricocheting to media outlets and news stations worldwide. Around 8 a.m. later that morning, Greenwald and Gelman emerged from their rooms to find the W's lobby filled with camera crews and reporters, and both journalists looked at each other filled with worry and thought, where was Snowden? If reporters found him, then so could the Chinese police, or worse, the American government. The two men dodged the press before making it up to Snowden's room at the Mira, but the room was empty, and Snowden was nowhere to be found. We continue to track the hour-by-hour developments of Edward Snowden. We know that somewhere out there, Edward Snowden is on the move, or at least has been on the move. Snowden had made it out of the Mira only a few moments before the hotel lobby was flooded with reporters, followed closely by Chinese police. Snowden dressed as a cameraman and met an attorney who hit him with a group of Chinese refugees. The plan was for Snowden to wait there until the lawyer could secure him a safe way out of China and into a country without an extradition agreement with the United States. As Snowden stayed in an underground bunker, sharing floor space with 13 other people, none of whom spoke any English, the rest of the world was spiraling into complete and utter chaos. I can confirm, uh, because I said so I think at the beginning of this trip, uh, in one of the first questions that was asked, that we have gone through uh, regular law enforcement channels uh, in enforcing the extradition uh, request that we've made uh, with respect to Mr. Snowden. From the moment he left the Mira that Monday morning, Snowden had become a pawn in an international game of chess. In the next few weeks, various players would crowd around the board, including the U.S. Department of Justice, China, Russia, Bolivia, and Ecuador. Each country speaking up had its own motives and strategies. It was still hard to tell which country was backing which party, except for the White House, who made it incredibly clear that their sole object was to arrest Snowden as a traitor. When Snowden wasn't immediately found by Chinese police or reporters racing around Hong Kong, law enforcement turned their attention to countries without an extradition treaty with the United States and the Chinese government. With each day Snowden remained off the radar, it was another day that he would be closer to traveling and closer to potentially being detained by the Chinese government. Snowden's attorney was contacted discreetly by Julian Assange, the owner of WikiLeaks. Assange was desperate to be part of the entire Snowden affair. The site had, at one time, been the go-to source for political news and celebrity gossip. It had been used by Chelsea Manning and other whistleblowers to share their stories. But now, WikiLeaks was on its last legs. Assange wanted to use Snowden to bolster his site and generate new interest in the platform. Snowden's attorney told him that Assange might be their only way out of China, and Ed welcomed the support. Since going into hiding, Snowden felt stranded on an island all alone and gladly took the assistance. By now, Snowden had been hiding for nearly 15 days. Assange needed to do more than just publicly announce his support of Snowden, which he had done. He needed to get one of his people by his side. Unfortunately for both Assange and Snowden, WikiLeaks had no central office or permanent employees. It only had backers and volunteers. Among them was an eager woman named Sarah Harrison. She was a trusted assistant of Assange who was traveling in Australia, but immediately offered to fly to Hong Kong. Assange announced that Harrison would serve as Snowden's legal researcher despite her lack of legal experience. Harrison made it to Hong Kong by mid-June, and Assange began working on the second stage of his plan, finding a country that would grant Snowden asylum. Assange began consulting with foreign embassies, legal teams and his government connections in an attempt to craft some kind of document that would grant Snowden safe passage to a country of his choice, but it was proving more difficult than Assange had planned. Things were not looking good for Snowden. By Friday, June 21st, it was clear that the United States government was circling in on Snowden. They didn't know where he was staying, but had been working to block his exit at every turn. The White House reached out to Chinese law enforcement, asking them to detain Snowden if he tried to fly out of their airport. The FBI and CIA had also reached out to other countries, threatening them with legal sanctions if they didn't arrest Snowden, or turn him over to American officials if he landed in their countries. Snowden's attorneys had made little headway with the Hong Kong government. The best-case scenario ended with Snowden locked in a Hong Kong jail while his lawyers argued his fate. And the worst case was that he'd get shipped back to America to face the jury, judge, and executioner known as the NSA. That is, if he even made it that far without succumbing to suicide or an unfortunate accident orchestrated by the agency he once served. Snowden couldn't wait any longer as a sitting duck and one claim that gave him hope was the rumor that Hong Kong would welcome his departure. They wanted Snowden out of China, and Snowden was happy to oblige. At the last minute, Assange was able to book Snowden a flight to Ecuador with layovers in Russia and Cuba in order to evade U.S. agents. The flight from Moscow left the next night, Saturday, June 22nd. But later that night, the situation went from bad to terrible when the evening news broke. The United States government had filed a criminal complaint against Snowden, charging him with espionage, and they asked Hong Kong to detain him on a provincial arrest warrant. All three of Snowden's attorneys convened at his hiding place to decide what to do. Snowden, backed by Harrison, decided to leave Hong Kong as quickly as possible. It was possible that the announcement was a trap, but he couldn't wait to find out. The moment of truth came the next evening, when Snowden presented his passport to the Chinese officer at the airport for inspection. The day before, the American government cancelled it. Snowden felt time slow down. A second felt like an hour as his passport was scanned. His heartbeat was the only thing he could feel or hear. He waited to see a red light or be tackled to the floor by police. Instead, he was ushered right through. And so that Saturday, Snowden and Sarah Harrison boarded flight SU-213 to Russia without incident. With seat belt securely fastened the seat belt light is on. Snowden had his four laptops, but he cleared them all of American documents for his trip. His job was done and he'd no longer need them. Snowden wondered what his fate would be. Would he become nothing more than a forgotten relic shoved away into a dark corner of America's past or hailed as a hero? When Snowden's plane was taking off, fewer than a dozen people knew that the most wanted man in the world was on a flight toward Moscow. And yet, by the time Snowden and Harrison peered out their window at Moscow's International Airport, a crowd of reporters and cameramen were waiting. Reporters and police waited to greet Snowden, but they never saw him get off the flight and wasn't seen outside of customs. As soon as his plane landed in Moscow, two Russian intelligence officers were waiting outside the terminal to grab him. Instead of making it to his next terminal, Snowden was searched and brought to the airport lodging motel, where a guard stood at attention 24-7 outside his room. The Russians made it clear that Snowden wasn't under arrest since he'd committed no crime in Russia. But the government didn't know what to do with Snowden and started discussions with the United States and Snowden's lawyers to decide what the next step should be. With no passport, his plan shot to shit, and no allies in Russia, Snowden was stranded. The United States, who'd engineered this plan, had Snowden exactly where they wanted him. They could spin a story about how Snowden was a double agent, working with the U.S. to deliver tech secrets back to Russia in exchange for money and fame. Again, Snowden was forced to relinquish his fate to his lawyers and the government officials arguing over his actions. The question pinging around his mind was if the United States government would recognize Snowden's status as a whistleblower or would they reduce him to nothing more than a Cold War traitor. Snowden spent his days in the shifty airport motel appealing to every country that even mentioned the possibility of granting Snowden asylum. The U.S. government was not shy about eliminating those opportunities for him as well. The U.S. was actively putting pressure on foreign leaders who offered Snowden asylum, causing them to retract their offers. Snowden's prospects were starting to dwindle. High-ranking government officials had adamantly denied accounts of foreign espionage in the media and in public congressional hearings. These powerful intelligence hotshots thought they were untouchable, but now found themselves being drugged through the media. And it wasn't just a public vendetta against Snowden, but a personal one. After 39 days in isolation, Snowden had all but given up hope. His thoughts drifted to the possibilities that awaited him back on American soil, and none of it was pleasant. Snowden was sure he'd be sent back to America to face the crimes the U.S. had charged him with. But on that 39th day, to his utter shock, Russia quietly let him go. On August 1st, Snowden was permitted to leave the Moscow airport lodgings. Snowden's lawyer had prevailed in getting him granted temporary asylum in Russia for one year. The night that Snowden was released from his motel cage was the first night in years that he finally felt free. Snowden had single-handedly facilitated the most enormous government security breach in history. In the wake of his disclosures, Snowden was left to wonder, Would his actions create change and accountability in the government's data collection, or would his efforts be in vain? Most importantly, would the US government ever stop chasing Snowden, or would he spend the rest of his life looking over his shoulder? For the first few months in Russia, Snowden couldn't sleep or eat. He couldn't shake the feeling that he was still on the run, that agents would come bursting through his door at any time and drag him to an unmarked jail where he would rot. It sounded bleak, and it was. The thoughts and fears consumed Snowden day in and day out. It didn't help that his name was still in every headline and dominating every news cycle. Some government employees attempted to keep their statements about Snowden focused on how he went about disclosing the documents. They complained that he should have considered alternative means, but there was no other way in Snowden's mind, no other way that would end with real accountability or justice. James Clapper condemned the leaks. The ex-CIA director noted that Snowden should be hanged if he was ever convicted of treason. An NSA analyst commented that if murder wasn't illegal, he'd personally kill Snowden himself. Members of Congress cried that Snowden was nothing more than a low-level analyst who wouldn't have access to top-secret files. Other White House officials painted him as a Russian and Chinese double agent. Their goal was to paint a picture of Snowden as a traitor to his country and attack his character. But Snowden didn't need to defend himself against their accusations because he knew that they would all bury themselves in the end. Before Snowden released the documents in 2013, James Clapper gave a speech at the American Enterprise Institute where he unequivocally stated that the government doesn't hold data on U.S. citizens. Yet, documents leaked by Snowden show that the NSA holds onto data of American citizens for a minimum of five years. All the data. It wasn't Clapper's first lie, and it wouldn't be his last. In response to the array of lies Clapper fed the public, the ACLU immediately brought formal criminal charges against him, and the case remained in the court system for years. In response to Snowden's disclosures, then-President Obama went on The Charlie Rose Show and stated that the NSA wasn't listening to phone calls or targeting emails. But multiple media outlets had documents to prove that those claims made by Obama were false. Lie after contradiction, contradiction after lie, the American government, Republicans and Democrats, couldn't seem to get its story straight. The more the government tried to backpedal and cover up their tangled web of lies, the deeper they got caught. The public quickly grew fed up and infuriated with the government's handling of the Snowden case. They could tell, plain as day, that they were being lied to. And still, the government wouldn't own up to what they'd done. Citizens around the world grew weary of their governments, and a growing sense of paranoia and general distrust of the state seemed to dominate the rest of the year and still persists today. For Snowden, the leak and disclosures were about principle. He wanted to show people that anyone can stand up to the government and do the right thing, even when it feels impossible. He believed that the government deserved to know what was happening in the deep and dark underground tunnels hidden beneath a remote island. Snowden risked giving up his entire life in the pursuit of making a difference and keeping our government honest and accountable. It was a huge risk, And his biggest worry, as the media attention died down around the case, was that his efforts were merely in vain. Change wouldn't happen right away, he knew that, but he desperately hoped it would happen. In June 2, 2015, the U.S. Senate passed and President Obama signed the U.S. Freedom Act. The Freedom Act restored modified provisions of the Patriot Act that had expired the day before, while also, for the first time, imposed some limits on the bulk collection of telecommunications data on U.S. citizens by American intelligence agencies. The goal of the new act was to have more enforced restrictions around the data collected and the way it's accessed. The new limits were widely seen as stemming from Snowden's revelations. In 2020, the now 38-year-old Snowden was ready to watch one of the biggest decisions of his life play out on an international stage. In September, the federal court announced they were prepared to render a ruling of the 2013 court case, and today was that day. Snowden watched the verdict while standing on a cobblestone street through the window of a local coffee shop. Russian subtitles flashed across the bottom of the tiny TV inside until the federal court ruling flooded the screen. The court had decided that the U.S. intelligence's mass surveillance program, exposed by Edward Snowden, was undoubtedly illegal and possibly unconstitutional. They also asserted that U.S. intelligence leaders, who publicly defended the government against claims of domestic spying, lied during a criminal trial. The American political system still had a long way to go. The war on digital rights and online privacy is far from over. And to see real change, the people would need to start holding the government accountable. The wheels of justice turn slow. And even if it didn't feel like a win now, this is what a win looks like now. The United States government has yet to budge on its charges against Edward Snowden, and he remains exiled and blacklisted in Russia. Snowden is still a wanted criminal, and setting foot in America would still land him in jail maybe for the rest of his life. In the wake of the court's verdict, however, Snowden hoped that one day he would be truly free again. Maybe he will be. I'm Keith Corneluk, and this is Modem Mischief. Thanks for listening to Modem Mischief. Don't forget to hit the subscribe or follow button in your podcast app right now so you don't miss an episode. Modem Mischief is supported by you, our listeners, and the best way to support us is to tell your friends. Share the show with your friends, your enemies, your family, and find us on social media at Modem Mischief. Another way to help support us is on Patreon. Look for that link in the show notes. In some cases, we don't know exactly what happened, so we use dramatic reenactments. That said, Modem Mischief is heavily researched and sourced. Sources for this episode are available on our website. Modem Mischief is brought to you by Mad Dragon Productions and is created, hosted, and produced by me, Keith Corneluck. Additional writing and research for this episode by Lauren Minkoff. The theme song is composed by Computer Bandit, mixed and mastered by David Swope. For more information, visit us online at modemmischief.com. Thanks for listening.